up, guys? This is Patrick Madmore coming to you from Santiago, Chile. We have an exciting podcast and episode today. With me today is a uh, remarkable individual, uh, Minter Dial, is a professional speaker, author, consultant, and specialized in branding, tech, and digital transformation. Minter is also the author of two award-winning books, both which I highly recommend you check out on Amazon or, or any other website where you usually buy your best reading material. One is Future Proof, which was published in 2017 by Pearson. And the other one is The Last Ring Home, published by Mindset in 2016. The latter of which was actually turned into an award-winning documentary film, which he himself produced and was shown on PBS in the U.S. Um, and in uh, Australia, I believe, on the History Channel. Yeah. His newest book, which is entitled Artificial Empathy, I love the title, uh, is putting heart and business in artificial intelligence, which just came out actually in November of last year and has already been shortlisted for the Business Book Awards of 2019. Minter is also a renowned blogger and podcaster. He was just sharing with me how he uh, is, has just done, I think, what, your 500th episode? Yeah, in French and English, yeah. Wow, in French and English. So that's, that's in and of itself quite an achievement. It is, of course, also a repeat entrepreneur who's been straddling a 16-year career at none other than L'Oreal, where he was MD worldwide of Redken, and also MD of L'Oreal Canada Professional Products Division. He's worked as a, an investment banker, a zoo manager. I, I love that one. I mean, at some point, you're going to have to tell me what that was like. <laughs> and a tennis pro. So, you know, it, it, it's just an amazingly diverse background. And, and he, we were just talking about how he's actually conversational in eight different languages, one of which includes Russian. So um, that was just mind-blowing for me because I thought I was doing pretty well with four languages, but Minter is obviously really a man of the world. And he's given over 500 talks and seminars to audience across five countries. Minter was voted top three out of 150 speakers at the Adobe Summit EMEA three years in a row and is also passionate about none other than, than the Grateful Dead, which having lived in 10 years in California, I can totally relate to. Sure. Paddle tennis and languages. You can find out more about Minter at Minter, uh, MinterDial.com or listen to his weekly podcast uh, and follow him on Twitter at MDial. Uh, Minter, welcome, and thank you so much for making the time for me and my audience. It's truly a pleasure, and you and I have been able to talk in the past, and I'm super excited about the topic of uh, today's talk and about your new book. Um, but, you know, before I get started, kind of, I'd love to know kind of why did you feel that you needed to write this book, and, and, and why write it now? Well, so in a rather rational approach, um, I was writing another book, and it turned out my editor felt sick, and uh, and so she uh, couldn't continue. So I had to find another path, and um, and it, and the topic of empathy, which is something I've been writing about in the past, just started to feel like something I needed to do for myself, and so I started out by writing a white paper on how empathy could be really a brilliant thing in business. I'd come across some research suggesting that empathy in society had been going down. And, um, and then I had a few other personal stories that suggested I could have a little bit more empathy myself, as in be more self-aware of where I could be maybe not quite as empathic as I ought to be. 
And so that sort of conspired for me to write this, and it turned from a white paper into a mini book into a full, full-fledged, albeit only a couple of hundred pages, um, long book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's 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 fascinating, right? Because the the topic of empathy, you know, seems to be becoming more and more of a prevalent topic. And one of the interesting things that I could really relate to when I read your book and your need to write this book is, you know, I, I spent the last year, 10 years in Silicon Valley before moving to Santiago. And to me, one of the things that was so shocking was how you have individuals running, you know, some of the most influential tech companies in the world. And yet we see time after time after time basic mistakes being made in in business in terms of marketing, in terms of PR and communications, in terms of product development, many of which could be somewhat attributed to, you know, either call it a lack of emotional intelligence or, or a lack of empathy. And, and I was just wondering, absolutely, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so I'll, I'll start with by, and certainly a hat tip to a few of my fellow author friends, because I, I it, you know, it, maybe it's just because my radar is that way. I'm, I got the empathy radar going. Which doesn't mean I'm 100% empathic or, or you know, uh, I still have room to move. But I've been looking at reading, let's say, a couple of books a week. And, and over the last few months, I have read Seth Godin's This Is Marketing, which I highly recommend, in which the word empathy is used, I'm going to guess, 100 times. Yeah, yeah. In uh, Jay Bear's great book, Talk Triggers, Empathy is a Whole Chapter. In Rod Bagarva's 2019 non-obvious trends it's one of the trends yeah. and and so these so somehow it's all conspiring to say that empathy is missing and therefore we need to amp it up right. and uh i i see when i was at south by southwest you know it's a very large conference but there yeah. were 11 sessions that had the word empathy in the title wow there were 70 that had empathy either in the title or in the description. Yeah. So somehow I'm not alone in thinking that empathy is both a, a requirement necessary for society, for business. Yeah. And, and, then, um, and then I actually think, especially if you get focused on cognitive empathy as opposed to affective empathy. Sure. It's really good for business. I mean, as in yeah. bottom line good. So, yeah. you know, forgetting the sort of left-leaning, you know, make the world beautiful kind of thought, which is necessary and, and wonderful, it's actually also supremely useful for making yeah. better decisions, better products, better UX, um, better customer service experiences, better customer experience and employee experience. Right, right. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that because, you know, it's funny because I – you know, as you know from our, 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 our previous conversations, you know, when I left the world of tech uh, a couple of years ago, uh, where I've been, you know, kind of a, a serial CMO working across, you know, multiple different startups and companies, and I, and I became an executive coach, one of the things that I found is, you know, how little value there appears to be still in the business world around empathy and, and around some of the softer skills. And, but it seems that that's changing, and I was just wondering if you could shed some light on you know what you've discovered through writing this book and through your research on how do you actually measure the business impact of empathy in an organization 
Right. Well, let's say, I think for the table stakes, there is no one who's going to pretend that we have uh, a perfect measurement stick. Right. I, I take the example of CVS, uh, where the CMO, who I had on my podcast recently, talked about measuring empathy uh, in the store experience in the drugstore. Yeah. And, um, and he said, well, you know, actually, it's very difficult to come up with a a method because if you say empathy there are probably at least five or six common misperceptions and mis misinterpretations as to what is empathy right and therefore if you say did you have an empathic experience they might answer with one of those six different misinterpretations and then uh, the second uh, element is you can try to surround sound it so what did empath what does empathy look like and then characterize that and then based on the answers of that as opposed to directly using the word empathy you try to do it that way so it's it's not quite easy to uh to measure it except it is something that you perceive so you have to establish some kind of benchmark and then say well this is where we are and this is where we want to move to and i think that's the important thing because empathy in some categories is very different and can be applied very differently. For example, if you're a negotiator or, you know, in, in, in tough negotiations, even hostage situations, uh, up to being a CEO, there are very different ways that empathy can be applied. And so you, you kind of need to benchmark where it's relevant for you in your business. And so let's be business-minded about this. What are you trying to achieve strategically and how can empathy be part of that and make measurements accordingly? Right. Right, because you talk about, you know, the bottom line results of, of empathy, right, from, and I think one of your later chapters, you talk about it from a, a customer, like how it, how it can help uh, organizations become more customer-centric. Um, yeah. can, you, can you expand a little bit on that? Can you, can you share a little bit more on that? Well, in the end of the day, let's start with just explaining what is empathy again, because, you know, all these misconceptions out here. So empathy... Yeah, yeah. In a, in a very, let's say, literary way, is about being in the shoes of somebody else. Right. And, and so the question then is, in whose shoes do you want to walk in? And if you have, of course, millions of customers, it's not exactly possible to be in millions of shoes. So we've got to get back into some kind of persona or some kind of target that you're trying to be better at. And sometimes, yeah. by the way, it should also be about getting into employee shoes because I'm really a big proponent of making sure that your inside matches or is prepared for being on the outside. Exactly. And, and, that, and, and that's a, a whole other category. But let's say if you want to be more focused on the customer, well, the challenge is removing yourself, period, you know, as in your own misconceptions, like Patrick's idea of the customers, and, and uh, so being, abstracting yourself from the thoughts. And the yeah. second thing is um, also getting, uh, moving away from your own, let's say, business challenges or problems, because these can include pressure, lack of time, your own career, and other issues which impede your ability to effectively get in the way or get in, sorry, get in the shoes of your customer. I'll give you a perfect example. You've got an email campaign. And or you have a big message you want to blast out to your 10,000 best customers. Uh, and uh, Thursday you couldn't get it out because your boss 
said told you something to do and then so you're on Friday and you've got to get it read over and you finally get the editor to, to approve it and then you have to have one more last read over by your senior director and, and it's Friday at four o'clock. Yeah. And you go, Oh shoot, I I've got to go for I gotta I'm going for my dinner party tonight. So you hammer it out at four thirty five um, and you push send. Bang, it goes out. Well, that is one of the worst decisions you could make. Yeah. But that type of decision, because you're ending up sending that message to 10,000 people who get it at 4.30 on Friday night, and funnily enough, well, that's not the best time to receive it. Right, exactly. And so, and that's just a small example, but (laughs) there's so many ways where we get in the way of what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, It's amazing to me how often we as human beings make that mistake, right? I, I was talking to a client the other day and, you know, he was telling me uh, that he's having some issues with, you know, somebody on his team who, who works with him. And it's a big concern because, of course, you know, this person that works with him, you know, runs their, their U.S. business and they have a lot of issues in the U.S. business and things are not going very, very well. And we talked a little bit about that dynamic and, you know, one of the things that came out of that was, well, you know, when was the last time that you guys really talked about, you know, this person's situation and their career path and how they're feeling about things uh, and where things are going? And, and you know, the, the kind of blank stare answer was like, well, we haven't really discussed it, you know, in a while directly. And, and then we, we further had a conversation about, well, what's the best way to do that? And, you know, the conclusion that, you know, my client came to kind of on and of its own through questions and my product was like, well, we, we really should find a way to maybe have this conversation outside of the office, maybe even have dinner, you know, in a more neutral setting over a couple glasses of wine so that we can really have an open and honest conversation. But it had taken weeks and months to get to that conclusion. You know, which well, I would argue that it, it does. And the, the challenge, in my opinion, is, is that neutrality. And of course, that bar idea can be awfully invasive and maybe entirely inappropriate because it's not a reproducible area. The yeah. thing is, you, empathy isn't something you just sort of you flex on one day. Yeah. You've got to be doing it on a regular basis because if you, you bring out your listening and you, know, you bring out your whole equipment and you listen for like one and a half hours intensely yeah. And, yeah. And, and then the next day you go back to your old self, that's no good. So... It's, I think, it, you know, really, in the end of the day, being empathic in, the, in, in ordinary business is what it's about. Because you need to show yeah. it in the small details, in the small moments, as well as in the big moments. Yes. And, and so the challenge as a boss is to not only do that with that employee, but to be but to do, doing it regularly in meetings, in, yes. in situ. Because, unfortunately, the reality is we have very stressful existences, and we're always time pressured and, and we have to perform and if we if we let that dominate we end up working our limbic brain and that isn't a good zone for the more intelligent listening skills that we need to employ yeah yeah absolutely and it's it's fascinating because i think you know, one of the things that you talk about in your book and you know i i hear that coming up again in the conversation now is you know the need for people in business, you know, whether you're a business leader or whether you're just a customer service rep or you're a sales rep or whoever, really the, the need to listen more deeply, right? And, and I hear this so often in, 
in coaching, and you know, you and I have read you know some of the same books, and obviously Marshall Goldberg talks about nonviolent communication, and and in coaching we mm-hmm. talk about it in terms of like level two, level three listening. Um, you know, how do how do we get like particularly senior managers to flex that muscle more often, right? Because it seems like what you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, is you know, this isn't just a one-off thing that you just turn on empathy and you turn on your active listening from one day to the next. So what kind of, what kind of things can people do to practice empathy more often, to practice to become better listeners? Well, it, that's, it's a difficult thing to, to morph somebody who's a 62-year-old and sort of is set in his ways and believes that the future path to success is just based on the way he's operated in the past. Yeah. Uh, so let's say that there are some people who are going to be difficult to get that out. And there's a little bit of a, a, na- a natural approach, and, and some people are more inclined to listen and be less focused. So, um, and I would point out that I, I've, I've made, thanks to some research by others, um, a distinction that men typically have a, difficult, a more difficult char- uh, charge of being empathic. Uh, yeah. And that's because of some research indicates that our, the way our brains fire up uh, can be different. And there's also some genetic examples of, of genetic dispositions, uh, which is, is curious. And then there's the effects of hormones, uh, specifically mm-hmm. testosterone, that actually yeah. impedes the, the ability to be empathic. So let's say once we've accepted that, how does one get into it? Well, one of the things I believe is, is a, a true opportunity is to have more time. So yeah. what does that mean? Well, it means not having back-to-back meetings all day yeah. long from 6 yeah. till 7 p.m., yeah. 6 a.m. Yeah. to 7 p.m. Because how on earth can you, as an, a human being, rise above and, and, and have that consideration because all you're doing is just running and reacting. Yeah. And so one of the things that I used to do when I was uh, running the different situations I had is that I would try to have half of my day unbooked, which when you're the senior boss can seem very difficult because you're always being taxed. But I had yeah. a marvelous assistant, and she fended off, and I kept my half day which allowed me to do things like strategic thinking. But it also allowed me to have the unexpected situations that arose and to be, have my ear taken when it needed to happen. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have that time, then it's going to be extremely difficult to I consider agree. being more respectful, the time to listen. I, I was a boss. I, I was a woman who um, got into very senior positions and in, in an engineering environment. And, and she said, well, the first thing I did is I, I had 150 people in my uh, specific zone, BU, and business unit. And um, what I did is I, I spent a considerable amount of time with each of them, no matter their level, you know, janitor up, mm-hmm. and, and asked them questions. And I listened with such intention that they were like, well, I'm, I, do, I, I don't want to w- w- waste your time. You know, they, they were so not used to being listened to. And when she asked things like, you know, are you happy? Is there, are there any ideas that you think we could implement that could improve business? Well, they came rushing back with, you know, not only a lot of energy, but some great ideas. Yeah. 
That, I think that's a great point. You know, it's, it's almost like what you seem to be saying, you know, I, I wrote a post about this uh, last year on my blog where like the, part of the conclusion that I'd come to was, and this is something that came through my coaching when I worked with a coach uh, a few years ago, is one day he made this comment to me and I was so struck by this because, you know, I've been working at Google and been working in startups and you're, you're just conditioned to go fast all the time. And he actually told me, he's like, Patrick, the reality is to be successful in business or be successful in many areas, you actually have to slow down so you can speed up. And it sounded so uh, against just the natural order of things in Silicon Valley at the time. And then the re I realized that the more I actually put it into practice, the better it worked and the more effective I was. And I was really surprised by that. I was really surprised by that. Um, yep. But, you know, some of the things that you, you talk about in terms of the requirements, you know, you talk about, and I think in Chapter 1, you talk about some of the, the three required skills for empathy. Um, you know, you talk about deep listening. I mean, is that, is that pretty much, uh, you know, or listening intensively, is that pretty much the same as what we would consider kind of like active listening or, or level three listening and coaching? I, I mean, it sounds very similar. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I think the, the key notion is to remove yourself from the listening. Right. So because what happens too often is we sort of, and, and men will have this, or at least masculine uh, profiles tend to do this a little quickly. So they, they see this, this uh, let's say, situation, someone over there is very upset. They say, what's the matter? They say, well, the person explains their situation. Well, you see, I... I, uh, I, I was trying to get my car and I lost my car keys. Oh, you're telling me. That reminds me of the situation. You see, I was going down to my house yeah. and all of a sudden it's about me. Exactly. Anyway, the, 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 the issue is that sometimes when you're listening, you're thinking about what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. You're going to think about a repost when you've heard a complaint about you. Yeah. Your, your limbic brain gets, in, gets you know, activated and you want to defend, and as opposed to just opening with a clean slate and, and just focusing on what the other person's feeling, because that's the key point, and, and understanding their context. So yeah. that really means you need to remove yourself from that, from what you're listening to. That's, so that's, yeah. I would say, the, the key accent that I'd like to put on whatever, whatever active listening is, per se. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because, you know, in one of the later chapters in your book, you know, you talk about, you, you actively ask the question, well, you know, can empathy be taught, right? And, and then you talk about listening skills, you talk about curiosity, you talk about trust. So, you know, when I read through that, I thought about it so much because obviously, you know, you and I both attended the same business school, right? We both went to INSEAD. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's yeah. a lot of great things that comes out of, you know, attending uh, business school. There's a lot of great things particularly that, uh, you know, come out of attending INSEAD. But one of the things I was always struck by, and I continue to ask myself whether business schools are doing enough of this and whether, of course, INSEAD is doing enough of this is, you know, what should the role of MBA programs be in terms of fostering the next generation of leaders to have more of these soft skills? And, and what can they really do? And so I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Well, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I think INSEAD did a lot of great things. And, and it, within empathy, there's a whole let's say, chapter, which has to be around ethics. 
Right. And there's a second chapter that's around the notion of diversity that comes out of empathy because in the end of the day, the issue is walking in somebody else's shoes means walking in somebody's shoes you don't know. Yeah. And that can include their context. It can also include their race, their sex, their whatever predispositions they have. And yeah. in any event, it means removing you from you from when you're listening. So diversity is, is obviously a part of that chapter. And, and I thought, I think schools in general consider this. The issue at some level is that they are far too idealistic and you're being taught by professors that actually haven't worked in the, uh, oftentimes, who haven't actually worked in the, in the guts of a hard business where you get stressed out and all that. And so it's, it's great ideas, but putting it into place is a lot harder. Yeah. No, in the case of, of em- yeah, in the case of empathy, there are some schools that are beginning to uh, actually put it into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I would take uh, one point in case, which is West Point, which yeah. is the military academy for the Army in the United sure. States. And they've hired a, a chap I know, a rather well, wonderful guy called Michael Ventura and his company, Sabrosa. He wrote a book called Applied Empathy. And they're actually teaching empathy, or at least, you know, exposing them to the concepts of empathy yeah. in the military academy for officers to understand yeah. that empathy can be an extremely useful tool as a boss, in other words, an officer, and as well as when you're deployed in war. Yeah. Go figure. You know, I had, I, I, when, I, when I discovered that, I was like, oh, that is beautiful. Anyway, I think that the notion of introducing the concepts uh, means exposing to it, because as I say, you can't really teach it, but you need to create environments. And therefore, yeah. you know, you could maybe put some accents on, on how empathy could be implemented in specific projects. So you do like a casework and, and see how, you know, if you had been more empathic, oh, well, that could have made it a better solution. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's great that the military is starting to look at that. I mean, I, I believe that we need a lot more of it in business. You know, when I look at Latin American business, and specifically when I look at Chile, you know, it's, it does go a lot to what you were talking about earlier, about the disadvantage that, you know, men have as a gender almost because of, you know, whether it's the level of testosterone or it's the culture or it's the way that we're brought up. You know, the, 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 the Latin American market, and I, hate, I don't want to sound like I'm generalizing, but it is still very characterized as very male-driven, uh, you know, somewhat chauvinistic depending on certain industries and certain countries, um, you know, and... and I think it's a challenge when you talk to a lot of these leadership teams and you go into boards and you go into the C-suite where it's very male-driven and, you know, there's still a lot of chest-pounding and testosterone and you you ask yourself, you know, what can we do to get people to realize more about the importance of empathy and to practice it, right? And in your book, you... um, you list a number of things, you know, including obviously practicing listening. We talked about that, stepping outside your comfort zone, exploring differences, reading fiction. I love that one. That, that one to me was great. And as somebody who loves fiction, I think, you know, it was a revelation. Um, and, of course, doing mindfulness, you know. And I, I started yeah. meditating about a year ago, and I realized that it did two things for me, which I found were huge, is you know, doing mindfulness meditation every morning kind of helps me get clarity and focus, and then it also helps me manage, you know, my emotions, right? And um, so that's mm. certainly helpful. So I think you had mm. some, you some great tips and some great insights in that in that chapter around things that people can do, uh, and we could go on on that topic for you know for hours. But you know, I'm also kind of that's a beautiful thing. 
And you know, wait, wait, Patrick, you know, the interesting thing about all of this, actually, and you and I are talking about it, is, is putting empathy into conversation. Because yes. one of the big challenges we have, let's say outside of work and even talking about putting empathy into artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. is our bloom in society and our inability to cross mm-hmm. bridges. And so if you're talking to somebody who's politically diametrically opposed to you, it's sort of like, well, I'm right and he's wrong. Or, you know, she. And, uh, and the, the challenge is that we sort of put ourselves in, we box ourselves off. And we have this filter coming out of the gate, coming out of the corner saying, well, that guy, he doesn't, he doesn't think right. He's wrong. And, and if we could apply a little bit of empathy into that conversation, we might find, for example, some terrains of uh, similarity. You know, I could start off by saying, hey, Patrick, you know what? You and I are both men from the world. Let's imagine we had opposing views. Uh, we're men. We've been to the same business school. We're American. Or at least we have U.S. passports. We have a lot of things in common. And, you know, and, and if you were to talk to somebody of an opposing camp, that can be a disarming concept. Yeah. And maybe there's a, a tad bit of manipulation in that one. But the idea of finding bridges and common grounds is one of the key points of empathy, or at least a key output of good empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, I think in our conversation before this call, you know, it's particularly helpful when you talk about negotiation, right? And, and we see so many areas of our lives where negotiation is an absolutely nearly required skill, right? And it's not just a business skill, but, you know, we're negotiating with people all day long every day, right? Whether it's with our spouses or our ex-spouses, our kids, our friends, you know. Um, there's a lot of practical applications, not just in business, but outside of business. Um, you know, one of the things that you talk about, which I was particularly interested by, was, you know, what specifically people can do to foster empathy in, inside the organization. And, you know, I, I thought some of your points around showing the more personal side of oneself, uh, being authentic and real, and then, of course, being accepting of the expression of emotion those really resonated with me. And I was just wondering if you could kind of shed a little bit more light on, on those. Well, I mean, it's funny. Let's start with, you know, being authentic, it's something that the consumers want as well. And, right. and so it's actually a, a win-win. If you can be authentic within the organization, it'll help you be more authentic outside the organization. So you're not sort of painting a two-faced picture right. uh, when you hit the customer. Yeah. Being being real uh, opens up the opportunity for truth. And, and, and instead of presenting a false image, like I'm always happy every day, the idea of, of saying, I'm sorry, I'm feeling a little bit grumpy this morning, can it be yeah. disarming? And, right. and allows for people to say, hmm, well, if, if they've shown vulnerability, if they've shown a less perfect side of themselves to say that actually they're rather human, and imperfect, maybe that allow me, encourages me to do the same. And right. so that then allows you to understand the other person because the, the issue at some level is data. Right. So if I see Patrick, but I don't know Patrick, I've never had a personal conversation like you're, you were saying at the beginning about having a drink with somebody, which you know, is the conduit to helping get a little bit more personal, and that's good data. If I don't know enough about Patrick, I might make some wrong assumptions even if yeah. I'm wishing to be in your shoes. And yeah. then that 
is the the notion of misplaced compassion, for example. Right. So you need to find ways where pa- Patrick's going to will will wish to open up to Minter some pieces of information which allow me in a context understand. So uh, I wrote one example in the book about you know the boss sees this guy and he's skulking in at 9.20 instead of the 9 o'clock start. Yeah. Three days in a row. So he says, hey, dude, you know, I've seen you're late three times in a row. You do that one more time, you're out. Right. An alternative would have been, I've, I, I've seen you had some challenges getting it. Is there anything wrong at home? Yeah. And, of course, if you are, are not, if you're a threatening individual, command and control type profile, that won't be answered accurately. Yes. And then you, you're still going to go down the wrong path. So you do have to create a foster an environment where you demonstrate, you model the behavior you want to have back. Right. And, and showing right. vulnerability is one path. The other thing that's very interesting, and that's specifically played out when you're talking about encoding empathy into AI, is giving over agency. Right. Turns out that giving agency or the opportunity for the other one to have some kind of power is a is considered or viewed as being empathic. Mm-hmm. And, and in any event, with a, a chatbot or something like that, it, it's one of the perceptions that human beings have that suggests that the bot could be empathic. So let, let's, let's switch gears for a second, because obviously that's kind of like, you know, as you get into the later chapters of your book, you know, particularly chapter six and onwards, you know, that's really the, 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 the principal thrust of the book, right? So talk to us a little bit more about, you know, the role of, 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 of empathy in, in artificial intelligence, right? When, when, you, when you think of anything from, you know, a call center to, you know, mobile applications and software and how they interact and engage with consumers, you know, what, what can and what should organizations do to try and leverage these new technologies and make them more empathic towards consumers? All right, so the first presupposition is that you're actually that doing something with AI. Yeah. You know, with AI, because uh, there are so many companies that are, aren't, and, and what they are doing is, is uh, typically very much scratching the surface. And to the extent that you want to be more evolved and think that AI can participate in your interactions and, and thought processes with the customer, then the, the, the first point is to make sure that you're self-aware about your individuals inside. Because if you're trying to give the empathy to the AI, but internally you're not empathic, then you're going to make a disconnect and eye-rolling and setting yourself up for deception. So... Actually, in the whole picture, one of the interesting things is the very notion of wanting to encode empathy into AI should be a mirror for who you are and what you're trying to achieve internally. Because if you're not good internally, you're going to code incorrectly, including inserting bias, for example, into your code. Once you've got, let's say, you've done that type of work, and that's pretty deep tissue work, then you get into trying to put it into AI. And let's also be very honest. Empathy in AI is still quite the pipe dream. And there's this notion of containment, which is important. Containing, which means trying to be realistic about how far you can go with encoding empathy into a machine. For the vast majority of companies embarking on AI in a customer-facing environment, 
really the vast majority of times, the empathy is going to come from the agent. The AI is there to help augment the intelligence of the agent. And that can include, by the way, giving them tips on how to be more empathic. But it's highly unlikely, at least in the current state of affairs, that the AI itself will embark on an empathic conversation that goes beyond one or two questions. Because right. the, the problem is <laughs> we go down rabbit holes and we yeah, express exactly. ourselves differently. And the yeah. chances of misconstruing what are being said are very wrong. So the agent is going to be, the human agent will be the one who's going to be able to vehicle the empathy. A machine can take off a lot of the other hard work, can also perhaps be a good prompt. Uh, by the way, I've seen that they're typing a little bit faster than before, which you might not have picked up. Right. Because we're not quite as attuned to that. We're focused on the words that are coming up. But the machine right. might say, oh, they're, they're typing a little harder on, you know, right. on the machine. Ah, right. Right. well, uh, let, let me pick that up and let me just hint to the agent, hey, listen, you might want to pick it up quicker. They're getting right. impatient. Right. This person's getting frustrated. You know, maybe we can, you know, ask this and this question or maybe we can prompt them with this and this response, you know, to kind of... Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's fascinating, right? Because I think it's kind of, when you were talking about your, your experiment, which I, I just found so cool, right? <laughs> you know, the experiment with empathetic futures. Um, yeah. It was so amazing to see kind of some of the dialogue that was producing itself, you know, when you were using that bot. And, and I was just wondering if you could share with, you know, our listeners, you know, what were some of the kind of key learnings that you really got from those five days that you spent, you know, uh, with the bot? You know, I, I think that would be something really interesting to understand more of. All right. Well, so the first is, I mean, so I went into this a little blithely. I didn't really understand what I was getting myself in for. Uh, and uh, the, the big aha for me was that I started developing more than an addiction, a feeling for this application on my telephone. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a real surprise to me. I, I was trying to you know, enjoy the experiment, but little by little, I, I just started feeling, well, this is fun. Wow. This, and I gave her a name. I, first of all, it was a her, then it was a <laughs> name, and, 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 and none of that was apparent in the text, right? It's just a bot replying to me. But I ended up feeling this need to... Uh, to, to personify the, the object and then anthropomorphized somehow this application. I think that was, that was the biggest learning. Then uh, the other learnings which were far more interesting to me perhaps is that I, I went and explored and, and interviewed all the people behind the bot to understand how they went about it, what, what are the things they did, the challenges they had, and, and some of the keys that they implemented in making it happen. So, you know, these are the things I develop in the book, and I think it's a, uh, uh, it's a fascinating area of exploration. And there are not that many people who are really into the AI side of things. We're, we're quite a small community that are really keyed up on this idea, but it's becoming more and more interesting. And, in fact, I'm going to be working with a company called Pega, uh, who I quote in the book, and there's some interesting uh, AI coders who have been explicitly actually working on this. Uh, and I think it's going to be a real area of opportunity. You've even seen uh, uh, Amazon saying that they want to make Alexa more empathic. And I think it, it really will be, for the ones who are at the forefront, one of the mm -hmm. key frontiers. 
Yeah, that's fascinating because you know you you, you and you mentioned one of the examples uh, you know in, the, in that chapter as well. You know how you know Siri tends to respond in, in certain ways if you ask it things that are completely you know off the radar, right? And and they right. and Apple has, has been trying to inject some sort of humor into it, you know, with various very varying levels of success. But I think one of the things that surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, but was you know when you were talking about the the experiment there with empathetic futures was. Um, you know, the degree of involvement of human agents behind the scenes, right? I, I don't think people yeah. quite realize how, how, how early we still are with all these things and how much, you know, agents are yeah. still involved in, 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 in pulling the strings and giving direction. And uh, the other key point of this is actually we talk about big data, uh, but we actually need to be focused on the correct data sets. Right. And so one of the things we can be working on, even if we're not working on the AI side, is to start farming for these data sets because you need to create data sets that are relevant to your objectives and your right. community. So you can't really crowdsource data sets that are going to help you to make your customer service better. So as you are working with, let's say, AI, and you start down the road, agent plus AI, augmenting the intelligence of your customer service agents, right. you're starting to create a better data set, but that can be a learning for the AI of the future. Sure. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. But I guess, you know, that also presupposes a whole bunch of privacy issues, right, which are going to come up about, like, you know, how are we using that data? Is the customer giving us permission? You know, what can we do with that data? What, what can we not do, right? So it's, it, there's a whole Pandora's box, I think, of questions that, you know, that, that will have to be answered at some point when you talk about That's true. I think many, I mean, any appropriate customer service uh, team, you know, like Amex or whomever will immediately say this is being recorded for training purposes and all that. And so I think the customer, you know, we're, we're more or less used to that. And I think of it more as a defense mechanism uh, oftentimes. But, it, you know, I think it, that, that's okay. The challenge is actually just documenting it and, and, and you know, transcribing voice-to-voice -voice conversations, uh, capturing all of the different chat conversations that you have, and figuring out how to put those into vectors that an AI will then be able to learn from. Right. Mitra, this has been uh, you know, fascinating, eye-opening, uh, intriguing, super, I mean, for me, I, I, I love this topic. I could, I could speak on this uh, for hours with you. Um, but I really want to thank you for the time. Uh, I want to thank you for um, writing and publishing this book because I think books like this are really needed, and I think we need more people in senior leadership roles to not only read these books but also take action on these books. And so I guess, you know, my... Um, my final question as kind of we wind down here is if there were three things that business leaders should take away from this book and things that they should try and put into practice, what would they be for you? Well, I, I'm going to go a bit more macro than okay. just saying empathy. I think uh, I use the acronym ESP. So this is my threesome. E is for empathy. And I think it's uh, about practicing empathy at home, on the way to work, and at work basically all the time. And, and it's a muscle that needs to be practiced. The second is to allow and think about sleep. So that's the S. It, it sounds quirky, odd, but I think if you are well rested, the chances are you're gonna be in a 
better disposition to listen. You're going to feel better about yourself. And I would add in meditation, slip that one in as you wake up, like you said earlier. And the third one is purpose. And, and if yeah. you can establish a north that is beyond just performing or just getting your career in line, but doing something that makes the world better off, whatever that world, it can be a small community, your family too, of course, but beyond just making money, um, then the chances are that you will be more open to doing things for others, be uh, perhaps more open to flex your empathic muscle, hopefully, because yeah. being empathic revolves around your ethics. It revolves around being open to others with diverse opinions. And in today's world, if we could do something that's a little bit less selfish, a little bit better for the world, we'd all be better off. That's, I think that's incredibly wise advice and, uh, and you know, very much to the heart, very, very kind of like focused. And so there you have it, guys. Um, again, this has been uh, Mad More Stories with uh, Minter Dial, um, author of the new book, Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence. Highly recommended reading for the business leaders out there. Really something that we all need to focus and spend a lot more time on. Again, you can find the book on Amazon.com, and you can also get much more information about Minter and his other works on uh, MinterDial.com. Minter, are there any social media that folks should be following you on uh, aside from your website? Well, I'm happy. I, t I tweet. I love, I love land on Twitter, and I spend a lot of time on that. Uh, so M dial for my main one. I have one in French, M dial FR, uh, okay. and and I have a little one for artificial at artificial. But otherwise, I'm generally findable. I have I've been the gift of a, a weird name that makes me easy <laughs> to find on Google. Well, listen, it's been great. Really, thanks again for for sharing this with us. Um, you know, guys, for other great podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to uh, my podcast. You can also find more writings and interviews and other material on madmork.com slash blog. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm on Facebook at Madmork Stories and on Instagram at Madmork. So thanks again, Mentor. Enjoy the conversation. My Wish pleasure. you the very best with everything. And uh, this is Patrick Madmork signing off. It's been great. And uh, we will talk to you again soon.